This morning I'd like to go to the book of Exodus chapter 15. The first 21 verses of this book, uh, of this chapter rather, uh, record a song that Moses and the nation of Israel broke out into immediately after their great and notable deliverance from the land of Egypt. The word Exodus means to exit. And the book of Exodus is about indeed the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt, uh, experiencing their exodus out of that land. That land of Egypt was a, a land of bondage. It was a land of captivity. They'd been in that land about 430 years. But God had made a promise way before that, that they indeed would be in that land. But the time would come when he would bring them out of that land. It may seem like a long time to us, but time is not relevant with God. God is not bound by time. He's above time. He's separate from time. Time is something that controls us. Now, in this chapter here, we find, again, where the nation of Israel, along with Moses, begin singing this song of praise and adoration to God for their deliverance. There is no record where Israel ever praised God when they were in that land of Egypt. That's somewhat sad, because they were his people when they were in the land of Egypt, just as much as they were his people when he brought them out and across the Red Sea. They were a people that had been formed and created by God in the very, you know, in the very beginning in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And now Abraham's seed is in the land of Egypt. They're there for about 430 years. God would use Moses, his servant, to bring them out of there. There are some comparisons and parallels between this deliverance and our deliverance as God's children. You look at the book of Revelation, chapter 15, and verse 3, you'll find where they shall sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Lamb of God. Notice how the song of Moses and the Lamb of God are brought together here. Moses was a servant. The Lord Jesus Christ was a servant of servants. Moses was a deliverer that God raised up, sent back to the land of Egypt to deliver his people out of that land. The Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven and he came to deliver his people from their sins. We find where Moses delivered a nation without the loss of one. There was not one Israelite left in the land of Egypt when God brought them out of there through the hand of Moses. He lived in an entire nation without the loss of one, dry shot on the other side of the Red Sea. The enemy, the Egyptians, were all destroyed. They were all drowned in the Red Sea. The Israelites saw their enemy no more. We have enemies in this life here of various kinds, but the day will come when we will not see our enemies anymore. When the Lord comes and takes us home to glory, you have seen your last enemy. When you draw your last breath, you've seen your last enemy. Never will the devil, the world, or your human nature ever bother you ever again. You'll never have another pain, another affliction of any kind. You'll never have another sorrow. You'll never have another heartache. God is taking care of all those things. In the book of Revelation, once again, the 20th chapter and the third verse, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, and there shall be no more sorrow. Um, there should be no more crying. Uh, all that's in the past. All that's been taken care of, you see. So we see while Moses delivered a nation totally and completely out of the land of Egypt, 
The Lord Jesus Christ delivered a people, his people, out of every nation and kindred and tongue of people upon the face of this earth without the loss of one. And again, when you draw your last breath, your last enemy will never be seen again. You'll never be bothered by anybody ever again or anything. And when the Lord comes and brings us home to glory, uh, we'll be taken out of this world to a much better world. This song here is the first song pinned down, and it's a song pinned down by divine inspiration. We find the Bible here says that Moses and the children of Israel sang unto the Lord this song. Now notice they sang not to each other, they sang to the Lord. In the New Testament, we have instructions to sing. Ephesians 5 and 19, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice it's to the Lord that we're to make melody in our hearts to. We're to sing psalms. We're to sing hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, the Psalms was the first hymn book of, you might say, of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Israelites used the Psalms to sing by, especially Psalms about 111 through about 118, 119. So that was the first hymn book, you might say, of the early disciples. Later on, hymn books were compiled as men began to write hymns. The hymns that we sing here out of this hymn book are some of the most treasured hymns that men have ever pinned down. And a lot of, in the denominational world, have gotten away from these. And that's unfortunate because these hymns here are, are real treasures in the truth they bring to the Lord's people. A true hymn will do two things. It will declare who God is and what God has done. You will see this as you read the 15th chapter here, the first 21 verses in the book of Exodus. So when we sing a hymn, you, notice for, you take notice for those two things. That hymn should highlight who God is and what God has done. 1 Corinthians 2 and 1, even the preaching of the gospel is that way. Paul told the Corinthian church, he says, I'm determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ, that's his person, and him crucified, that's his work. The church at Corinth had been disturbed through schisms and divisions, etc., etc. Their eyes had been taken off the Lord. That's why Paul will ask them this question. He says, was Paul crucified for you? No, he was not. Uh, was Christ divided? No, he was not. Christ came to preach a crucified Savior who represented a three-in-one Godhead where there's oneness and unity. And he, you know, he emphasized the importance of that in all of his writings. So he comes to that second chapter and he says, I'm determined to know nothing among you save two things. That's Jesus Christ and him crucified, his person and his work. And they are tied completely together. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ had to be a perfect work. Therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ had to be a perfect man. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ had to be one of uh, righteousness and holiness. For that to take place, his life had to be a life of righteousness and holiness. We're told that he was, uh, you know, in this world here, that he was in the world, but not of the world. And he was wholly undefiled and separate from sinners. Christ never sinned in thought, never sinned in emotion, never sinned outwardly, inwardly, physically, spiritually. He never sinned by omission, he never sinned by commission. All the different ways that we sin, Christ never sinned in not any way. He was perfect and holy in every sense of the word. He was a lamb without spot and without blemish. 
So his person and his work are tied together. If he was not perfect, the sacrifice could not be perfect. If he was not holy and righteous and sinless, then his sacrifice would never be accepted in the eyes of the Father. But the Father accepted the offering and the sacrifice. And the greatest evidence of this is when he raised him from the dead triumphantly over death itself, uh, signifying that when God saw his son, he saw perfection. He saw holiness, he saw righteousness, he saw sinlessness in the person of his son. So every true hymn that is sang should always do those two things at least. Proclaim who he is and what he did. And that's exactly what this hymn will do right here. They sang to the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. In both these verses, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, we have the heart involved. We're saying using the heart. We're saying with grace in the heart. You can't do that if grace is not in the heart. And we're to make melody in our heart to the Lord. We're not singing to be seen. We're not singing to be heard by men, but rather we're singing to the Lord. If you just keep that in mind, I think it should provoke us to always be at church on time when church starts, being our seats at the proper time, being involved in every hymn that is selected. Remember, part of the hymn selection is to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's overlooked a great deal, I think. So the selection of your hymn is very important. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He says, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with understanding. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with understanding. So we are to understand the words we use when we pray and we're to understand the words we use when we sing. Remember, we're singing to the Lord and the Lord doesn't want to hear anything that's not honoring to him. It's not to draw attention to us, but rather it is to honor and glorify him. This hymn here in Exodus 15 does that. It's all about that deliverance they experienced when God sent Moses and brought them out of that land of Egypt again across the Red Sea. A great miraculous occasion. When you go back to the previous chapter, you'll find when Israel came out of Egypt, they came to the Red Sea. They could not cross the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was very close behind them as they were going to pursue them and bring them back. They had a mountain on each side of them. In other words, they're trapped. There is nowhere to go. There is no you know, view here they have of what they can do to be delivered. It looks like this is it. But the Lord will tell them to stand still. Verses 13 and 14, he will tell them to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. They're going to witness the delivering, delivering hand of God, the salvation of God. He says, for the Lord will fight for you. And it's important because in the next uh, couple verses here, he's going to be referred to as the man of war. And there's people who've actually tried to take out him, some of these wonderful blessed hymns that portray the Lord Jesus Christ in that manner, in that way. You know, Martin Luther wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress We Have of God. Listen, we're, we're in a life of conflict. We have battles. And the Lord Jesus Christ is at war with this world in which we live. 
He's at war with the devil. He's at war with this world. He's at war with the evil and the wickedness of this world. And if we follow Christ, so are we. That's why we're given the whole armor of God to put on in Ephesians chapter 6. Read that chapter. Put on, therefore, the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. The devil is our adversary. 1 Peter 5 and 7, he says, Be therefore sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he is doing a good job of that. He's highly successful at that. About the great majority, almost everything that comes to your attention through the television is to portray things they want you to accept and to embrace, most of which is ungodliness, most of which is contrary to the Word of God. In Titus 2 and 11, he says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, godly, and righteously in this present world. That should be our objective, our goal, to live soberly, righteously, and godly. And yet, most everything you see on TV, and all the advertisements on the internet, and one thing and another, is designed to get you thinking in a certain way, to accept a certain behavior, to affect the life that you live here, to draw you away from God. You cannot watch that all the time and expect to be countered by about an hour and a half of worship on Sunday morning. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, Satan has used this tremendously in a, in a very successful manner and way to sway God's people away from the righteous commands of God's law. Immoral behavior, immoral living, of all kinds, without going into details here this morning, are being pushed upon us, are being thrown at us with the effort for us to accept it. I'm talking about us, the Lord's people, uh, to condition our mind to accept that, to affect our behavior here, uh, and to believe things are simply are not true. Simply are not true. Now, we have here that he's a man of war. God is at war. We are at war. We are fighting a culture that wants to cancel marriage, what marriage is. Well, we're living in a world that uh, wants to cancel, again, uh, all types of uh, uh, lifestyles, etc., etc., pull us away from the godly to the ungodly. Now, if you're not at war, it means you're at peace. So let me ask the question. You think the Lord's at peace with the world? You think the Lord's at peace with the devil? Uh, last time I checked, and I checked pretty daily, the devil and the Lord are not on the same side, okay? So that means me and the devil are not on the same side, and the church of the devil is not on the same side. So we're in great conflict. We're at battle. We are at war with the devil, with this world in which we're living, and daily, we have daily conflict with the very human nature that we possess. So he's referred to here as a man of war. That does not take away from the fact he's a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. In the book of Romans, in chapter 2, you will find where the apostle says, Behold the goodness and severity of our Lord. Uh, there's a balance. The Bible portrays the Lord Jesus Christ and his goodness, but also the Lord Jesus Christ and his severity. Uh, he is a God of judgment, and he will not wink his eye or turn and look the other direction where all this stuff that's anti-Christian is going on and not having a, an impact you know, on, the, on our lives here. So he's a man of war. If you go to the book of Revelation, you'll find three pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ that should stick out in your mind. When you go to Revelation chapter 5, 
you'll find where the apostle John began to weep because there was a book that was sealed within and without, and no man was found worthy to loosen the seals of that book. That's not the Lamb's book of life. It's not in the book of Revelation. It was a book of prophecy contained within the book of Revelation. But the Lord sent an angel and told him to weep not, John, for there is one that hath prevailed, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as a lion. He then he looked, he said he looked and he saw a lamb, spelled with a capital L, a lamb as it stood, showing that he was not laying as he would be in death, but he stood as in the resurrection. He saw a lamb as a lamb stood there. So we have a picture of the lamb. As a lamb, he made the offering a sacrifice and obtained eternal redemption. As the lion, we see it portrayed even in his life when he went into the temple. What did the Lord do when he went into the temple? He got, had a scourge of cords and he drove out all the money changers. And he turned their tables over in that temple. He says, you've made my father's house uh, a den of thieves and it should be called the house of prayer. Uh, the Lord was angry about that and the Lord displayed righteous indignation in doing that. That's the Lord Jesus Christ as the line that John saw in Revelation chapter 5. And then you come to Revelation chapter 19, begin verse 11, and you'll find the Lord Jesus Christ riding upon a white horse. He's coming riding in a white horse, and there are many crowns upon his head. And he has a vesture dipped in blood with the name, the Word of God. And he's called Lord of Lords and King of Kings. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of him as our conquering Savior. That's a picture of him as our conquering Lord, our conquering King. So you have him as the lamb, you have him as the lion, you have him as the conquering king over here. He's all of that. They don't contradict each other. They're all of that. And the Jewish people did have a problem. Uh, a he was a stumbling block to them in, in several different ways. But two of the ways was this. How could he be the lamb of God and also a lion? A lion is an enemy against the lamb, right? He can be a predator of the lamb. Well, he was both. And how could he be a servant and at the same time be a king? Because humanly speaking, in man's world, a servant is not a king, and a king is not a servant. But the Lord Jesus Christ was a servant of all servants. He's also the king of all kings. And they had trouble with that, and that became a stumbling block to them. So we find these three pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ as you read through the book of Revelation. Now, if you don't read Revelation, you're not going to see the pictures, right? <laughs> Somebody said, I, I don't read Revelation. It's just too hard to understand. Now, was that hard what I just said? Did I, what I just told you, did that seem hard when you see those three pictures? You may not know all the details. You may not know all the depth of those three pictures when you read it, but you can see those pictures. You can see him as the Lamb of God. You can see him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You can see him as the conquering hero when he comes again and uh, destroys all the enemies that are before him. You can see that. And when you get through reading the book of Revelation, there may be tons of things you don't understand, but one thing you can understand is Jesus wins. <laughs> That's worth understanding, isn't it? Isn't it worth understanding that Jesus wins? And if Jesus wins, guess what? You win. <laughs> <laughs> you win if he wins. And he won. He won everything. He conquered the devil. He conquered the world. He conquered human nature. He conquered the grave. He's the conqueror. He's the, he was victorious. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the God that is being portrayed here 
in this song who he is and what he done. Notice in verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. He is my God and I will prepare him a habitation, my father's God, and I will exalt him. I call this the 3S tonic right here. We got three S's. It says the Lord is my strength and song and he's become my salvation. You will find that recorded three times in the Bible, almost word for word, three different times. Here's the first time. It deals with what God was to Israel and bringing him out of the land of Egypt. This event was so significant, it's referred to and mentioned numerous times throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. God would make reference to this, uh, you know, oftentimes when he was instructing them to go forward to remind them of what he did for them in times past. If God could get them out of this situation, he'd get them out of any situation, right? You couldn't find a more uh, uh, dark picture, you might say, that they seen and felt before they crossed the Red Sea than this. The Egyptian army is here and they have no army. Israel had no army. They were not people of war. They were servants. They were prisoners. They were servants. They were used to hard work, not battle. They didn't have any weapons. How are they going to escape? There is no human, uh, human perspective, human viewpoint. There is no way they can get themselves out of that situation. There's no way to escape. But God said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You will have salvation. It will be of me. And you stand still and you see it. (laughs) And they saw it. Now, let me mention this. When they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea, they will not cross over Jordan's River into the land of Canaan at that time, which they could have. And they could not do that because of unbelief. They saw the giants, and they saw the great walled cities. Apparently, they forgot about their time in Egypt. Apparently, they forgot about what God did for them and bring them out when it looked to be impossible. But God didn't bring them out not to bring them in. Remember that. He didn't bring them out not to bring them in. He brought them out of Egypt to bring them in to the promised land, the land of Canaan. Might say more about that in a little bit. Here he says, the Lord is my strength. Where would you be without that in your life? And you know, one of the most uh, quoted verses in the New Testament uh, is Philippians 4.13. Brother David Neighbors puts out a little uh, encouraging message every once in a while to several different people, which I'm on the list. And he always concludes it with Philippians 4.13. We can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. How many things can we do? All things. All things God commanded. All things that's pleasing in the sight of God. All things that honor the Lord. We can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. There's nothing before us we cannot do if it's God's will for us to do it because he'll provide the strength. Where would we be without that particular aspect that the writer's emphasizing here? And then he's our song. Songs are made to be sung, right? Now Israel never praised God in the land of Egypt. Now they were in a period of darkness in their history. It takes, I believe, Christian maturity to have the spirit and the attitude to sing songs in the times of great adversity, in the times of great afflictions, in the time when we are facing problems that seem like they're insurmountable, but they never are. Remember that, they never are. They're never insurmountable, not with God on on the scene. Always remember that, okay? And so 
when you're in those kind of situations, it takes maturity, I believe, to be able to sing in that kind of environment. Well, guess what? In the book of Job, chapter 35, verse 10, Job says, God gives us songs in the night season. God gives us songs in the night. Night versus daytime. Daytime uses a picture of peace and tranquility and things of this nature. Nighttime's a picture of problems and sorrow and heartaches and, and those kind of things. You know, it's, that's the contrast. That's the difference between daytime and nighttime. He says, God has given us songs in the night. Songs to be sung in times of adversity and affliction, so these kind of things. And so they knew what darkness was about back there in the land of Egypt, but no songs of praise. If there's anybody who knew what a dark, a dark season was, it was Job. If there's anybody who knew what a night season, a dark season was, it was Job. Uh, want to compare your life with Job? <laughs> I'd like to hear it. Uh, I'll take Job's reckon account, and I think I'll stand over here with that, and I'd like to hear yours, how yours surpasses that. You know why Job's in the book? It's in there for a number of reasons. But God gives us the life of Job so that no matter what we're going through, we can never say, well, nobody suffered like me. Yes, they have. Nobody's ever gone through what I've gone through. Yes, they have. Everything that comes our way is common to man, and it's happened to somebody sometime in the past as well as happened to us in the present. I know we like, it's just part of our nature to think, why does this always happen to me? It doesn't. It happens to other people too. You know, uh, seems like everything happens to me. I can never think of anybody ever experiencing anything like that. They have. I can assure they have. Go read the first chapter of Job, and I, I know you'll agree with me, because you know I'm right anyway. But anyway, <laughs> go read the first chapter of Job. I'm sure we'll be on the same page and see what everything Job went through. If anybody knew what a night season was, Job did. Did he not? He says, God gives us songs in the night. Psalms 42, 8. David says, God hath commanded his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song in the night goeth with me. David had some night season, didn't he? Can you imagine what David was thinking, what he was going through when he was in a cave, and Saul was pursuing him, and oftentimes was very close by? David knew it, Saul didn't, but David did, knowing his life could be taken away at any moment. What about when his own son Absalom was doing this very same thing? His own son Absalom wanted to be king in the place of his father and was willing to kill his father to get it. That would have hurt bad enough, you know, by itself, just knowing that, but here facing all of this. You don't think David had some nice seasons? Well, he did. Psalms 42 8 says, God, again, hath commanded, notice, commanded his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song in the night goeth with me. When the Lord Jesus Christ was getting closer and closer to Calvary, getting closer to laying down his life, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. But before going to the Garden of Gethsemane, you will find where the Lord met with his disciples, and we have the Last Supper, etc., where he shared those things with his disciples. And when they got through, the Bible says, as they departed, they sung a hymn. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew immediately they were coming to apprehend him. The moment of darkness had come. The hour of darkness of Satan had come on the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when that hour of darkness lay before him, when they left that place, what did they do? They sung a hymn. And you go to Acts chapter 16, and there's two men, Paul and Silas, and they're in prison. They've been beaten, and they're placed in there, and they have their stocks, uh, you know, the, their hands and their feet are in stocks and chains, etc. 
But the Bible says at midnight, a significant phrase in the Bible, midnight represents the darkest time that there is. Just like uh, midday represents the brightest, midnight represents the darkest. And at midnight, what are they doing? They're praying and singing praises unto God. God gave them some songs in the night season, didn't he? I'm telling you, there's some hymns, some songs and spiritual songs that ought to be on our minds and our hearts in the night season. It's easy to sing when everything's going well, right? But what about when things aren't going so good? It should not dry up that hymn in our heart, my friends. It should not uh, uh, cause it to fade away. It should come to the forefront. Now, I believe the more you sing God's praises, the better off you're going to be in your attitude, your outlook, and your spirit, and everything else, no matter what you see and what you're facing in life. Just remember, this life is not forever. <laughs> this life is not forever. This life has an end to it. And when this life has an end to it, a lot of other things end. Not to be repetitious this morning, but a lot of other things end. Sorrow ends, heartache ends, affliction ends, pain ends, all the things that cause us so many problems in life. It all comes to an end. So Israel is delivered. And we find here where they mention about the strength and the song and the salvation of God. That's the first time it's mentioned. The second time it's mentioned is in Psalms 118, verse 14. Verbatim, same thing. Uh, many historians, theologians believe, and I think it was too, the 118th Psalm was pinned down during the time that Ezra was rebuilding the temple of God that you read in Ezra chapter 3. You find some of the exact same wording in Ezra chapter 3 you find in Psalms 118. And you'll find when they laid the foundation, just the foundation, they hadn't built the temple back, just the foundation. Remember the Babylonians had come and the Babylonians had done what? They had destroyed that temple. The Babylonians had broken down the walls. The Babylonians had destroyed the gates of the city. And there God sends Ezra and Nehemiah back down to that city. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to lay the foundation, build it back up. But just when the foundation itself had was laid, I remember looking at the foundation of this building. I remember coming up here and at this point of everything that we'd gone through, finding the location, coming up with the plans, selling the other building, all the things we'd gotten to at that point, we still had a ways to go. <laughs> we still had a ways to go. But I remember the very day that they poured the concrete here and poured the foundation and come up here and took a look at it, my heart just jumped with joy. I knew we still had a ways to go. I knew there was still a lot left in front of us. But just seeing the foundation, my friends, poured, just seeing the foundation laid, gave me a lot of joy and encouragement because I see, saw the progress we had made and I could see the end in sight. When they saw the foundation, they broke out in hymns of praise to God. It's the second special occasion where you find this here. And in Psalms 118, 14, they said, The Lord is my song, the Lord is my strength, and the Lord's become my salvation. Then the third time is found in Isaiah chapter 12. Verse 2, and he says, I will trust in the Lord and not be afraid. I'll trust in the Lord and Jehovah. Notice this, I'll trust in the Lord and Jehovah and will not be afraid. In the last year and a half, I've seen fear I never thought I'd see. The unknown brings fear. But personally, and I believe church-wise, 
we've tried to use good common sense, good judgment, follow our procedures and all that's been recommended to, to, you know, within reason, and put our trust in the Lord. That's a balance to be found right there. Following all these other things does never take away your trust in the Lord. Never separate, should separate you from your trust in the Lord. There is a balance here. And when we trust in the Lord, we don't have to be afraid. When we trust in the Lord, as Paul told Timothy, God has not given you the spirit of fear. He's not given you that. Brother, he's given you a spirit of, a, of, a, of love and a sound mind and much assurance. That's what he's given us. That's what I want. I want the spirit of love. I want the sh- spirit of assurance. Uh, that's why I love coming to the house of God for a lot of different reasons. It's just endless as far as that's concerned on my behalf. But I enjoy seeing you. I enjoy your handshake. I enjoy uh, your fellowship. I enjoy the uh, fellowship of the Spirit of God and God's presence. I need the assurance that God is still with me and God is still blessing us. I need that assurance on a regular basis. And thank God God gives it to us, doesn't he? I felt it here this morning. I, I, I feel more assured now than I did before I got here. What about you? Uh, I always feel better when I leave than I did when I got here, so why wouldn't I want to get here so I could feel better when I leave here? That makes sense to you? You can't feel better if you leave if you don't get here to start with. <laughs> and so, anyway, uh, let's see, where were we? <laughs> uh, we find uh, the third time it's used here. And Isaiah says, the Lord is my strength and my song and become my salvation. Three times, Exodus 15, Psalms 118, and Isaiah chapter 12 brings this expression to our attention. Has he become your salvation? Deliverance. That's what the word salvation, always remember that. The word saved or salvation means deliverance. And the majority of the time you see those words in the Bible, it has nothing to do with heaven and hell. Majority of the time. But it has to be with some type of deliverance that you experience here in your lifetime in a temporal manner, in a temporal way, during your earthly journey. Of which the word of God, the written word of God, and the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ will give you the encouragement, will give you the comfort, will give you the peace, and will give you the assurance you need, my friends, to know where your real help comes from. It comes from God. It does not come from Washington, D.C., thank God. That'd get me in a hole. That'd get me in a hole of depression. If I, if I was tying my anchor to that, I'll tell you that right now. I'd just soon to cut it loose and drift away. So these three times it's mentioned. Twice we're told that God hath cast the horse and his rider into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast in the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom as a stone. That's verse 5. Then he says, Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. In the greatness of thine ecstasy, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sendest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. Get the picture, if you will. The wording here is, is so wonderful, isn't it? It is so dramatic. He says, they went down the depths of the sea as a stone. Further on in verse 10, he speaks about them going to the bottom as lead. Now, some things float, some things don't float, right? Stone and lead don't float. (laughs) What's going to happen when you throw a stone? You know, you go down to the creek, go down to the pond. Kids love to skip a rock across the water. Uh, When it quits skipping, it goes downward. (laughs) 
He goes right down to the bottom. It doesn't waste any time either. A stone and lead don't just drift around a while and finally decide to go down. When he hits the water, he goes down, he goes down fast, he goes all the way to the bottom. That's what he said the horse and his rider did. God threw him in the sea. God cast him into the sea. Who did it? God did it. Did Moses do it? No, he didn't. Did Aaron do it? Did Miriam do it? Did Israel as a, as a, a nation of people do it? No, none of them did it. Only God did it. Thy right hand, O Lord. Now, what if he just said the hand of the Lord is glorious in power? That'd have been true, wouldn't it? But he didn't say the hand of the Lord. He said the glorious hand of the right hand of the Lord. The right hand in the Bible is expressive of authority. The right hand of the Bible is expressed as power. It's also expressed as honor. When Bathsheba came to see David to speak on behalf of one of his brothers... When she came there, the Bible says that God, that David set her on, on his right hand of honor. We find the Lord Jesus Christ at least a half a dozen times in the New Testament. When he finished his work here on this earth and he ascended up on high, the Bible says he sat down where? On the right hand of the majesty on high, that place of honor. The right hand's expressive honor, power, and authority. So it says the right hand of God hath dashed them into pieces. The right hand of God has thrown them into the sea. When the Lord comes back to get us, as recorded in Matthew chapter 25, guess where are you going to be? He's going to be like a shepherd divided his sheep from the goats. You put his sheep where? On the right hand. And the goats on the left. I can't ever quote that without thinking of this scene. I know some of you have heard me say it before, but you probably done forgot it. Anyway, I remember the First church I ever served in North Carolina had two wings. And a big, uh, you know, like this, and two wings over here. And in that day, it was pretty customary for brother to sit on one side and sister sit on the other. My father, all the days I remember in the church, sat on one side and my mother sat on the other. And that was just customary. It was just the way it was done. They left the middle for visitors. Glad they got away from that. I like to say husband and wives together. Plus, we don't have any wings here. Okay, so you got to be. Anyway, and I quoted this text. And I looked to the brother on the right hand, and I said, the Lord's put his sheep on the right hand. I looked right at them. Then I looked to the left, and I said, he put the goats on the left hand. and looked right at the sisters. <laughs> they didn't smile. <laughs> Nothing was meant by it. It's just the way it was. <laughs> They didn't want to be called out and they'd get in the middle out there, I guess. But anyway, guess where are you going to be? You're going to be on the right hand. The right hand, the majesty on high. There with the Lord Jesus Christ, that place of honor. That's where you're going to be. And so it's his right hand that's brought to our attention in this song here. Not just his hand, but his right hand is brought to our attention. And notice in verse 8. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. If you go back to chapter 14, you'll find where it says that uh, there was a, God sent a strong east wind upon the Red Sea, and it parted in two great walls of water. But notice how Moses described it poetically. That's what hymns usually are, is poetic language. Notice what he says poetically right here. He says, and the blast of thy nostrils... <laughs> God just blasted a wind right out of his nostrils on the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted two great walls of water. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
But notice what the enemy said in verse 9. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I'll draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Boy, the enemy thinks a lot of itself, doesn't it? I, 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 my, whatever. What did the Lord do? Verse 10, thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. <laughs> you know what makes this what boil down to? The Lord breathed his nostrils. The blast came out of his nostrils upon the Red Sea where it parted two great walls of water. And then when the Egyptian army got, tried to cross over the fall of the Israelites, he just released and breathed and the waters came back. Took care of them. Where's all their boasting now? Where's their boasting when they said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil, my lust shall be satisfied upon them. I'll draw my sword. My hand shall destroy him. It's all about I and all about my. But in the end, it was all about death. Pharaoh put out a decree that all the Jewish babies that were born, Exodus chapter 2, were to be drowned in the Red Sea. God turns the tables and drowns his entire army in the Red Sea. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Then a question is asked in verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who is like unto thee? The answer is clear, no one. <laughs> if you go to Isaiah chapter 45 and Isaiah chapter 46, no less than five times, the Lord asks a question or makes a statement. I am the Lord, there is none else, there is none like me. That's what this question is asking right here. Notice again. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? What God can do what our great God has done? What God can do what the true and living God has done? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, right hand again. The earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy has led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength to thy holy habitation. The people shall hear. Notice verse 14. The people shall hear and be afraid. Now he's not talking about the Israelites. He's talking about the enemies of the Israelites. He's talking about those other nations they're going to have to face. Thy people shall hear, the people, excuse me, shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Where are they heading to? They're heading to Canaan's land. In Canaan's land, there's going to be enemies in Canaan's land. What do you say here? It says they'll all melt away. Why? Because they're going to hear a report how Israel's true and living God brought them out of the land of Egypt, took them across the Red Sea totally and completely and safely, every single one of them, and drowned the enemy. A report of that great event spread throughout the known world of that day. Now just because they didn't have television and internet doesn't mean they didn't spread the word. It may have taken a little bit longer, but they spread the word. The word got spread. All these other nations, they heard about this. Go read Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, you'll find where Joshua sends the two spies into the land to the city of Jericho. And there's a little woman over there, Rahab the harlot, in the city of Jericho. And she says to the spies, we have heard... <laughs> How in the world is she here? God's got a way, my friends, getting this message across. God's got a way of spreading the news. 
says, we have heard what your God did to the Egyptians when he destroyed them in the Red Sea. We heard about that. As a result, our hearts melted. That's what it says here. They shall melt. The enemy shall melt. Why? Because the Lord promised to go before them. Go read Deuteronomy 1.30. And Deuteronomy 1 and 30, Moses says unto them, The Lord shall go before you to fight your battles before you, just like he did when he did all those plagues in the land of Egypt. Gave reference right back to that. Their hearts melted. The hearts of the Moabites melted. The hearts of the enemy in Jericho melted in Canaan's land. They're going to occupy the land of Canaan. And the news of this great event, what God did by his omnipotent power, is going to spread throughout the known world and bring great fear into the hearts of the enemy. You don't think God can do that today? That's why when I read Romans 15, 4, it says things written four times, written for our learning, we through patience come to the scriptures, might have hope. Verse 16, fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as steel as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. This is a purchased people, and they shall pass over. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. Again, he brought them out to bring them in. Verse 17, thou shalt bring them in, and they shall be planted in the mountain of thine inheritance, that's the land of Canaan, the land of promise. O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in the sanctuary, O Lord, God's sanctuary is going to be in that land. That's going to be their land. And God's going to bring them in. And then verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. What do you think about that expression, forever and ever? Sound pretty good? Uh, that sounds pretty good to me. I read over here in the book of 1 Peter 1.23, where I was at last Sunday. For you not born again by corruptible seed, by incorruptible seed, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth how? Forever. That word of God that lives there is the second person of the Godhead, the word, capital W-O-R-D, and that word lives and abides forever. In Hebrews 10 and 14, wherefore by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. How long have you been perfected? Forever. Hebrews 1, 7, 8. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and forever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. How long is your kingdom? Forever and ever. Five different times in the book of Hebrews, it says the Lord Jesus Christ was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We serve a God who's eternal. He's, uh, he's eternal, isn't he? He's from everlasting to everlasting. Hebrews 13 and 8. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying, yesterday, today, and forever, forever. It covers all the tomorrows, doesn't it? You've heard me say that a few times here. Why didn't he say yesterday, today, and tomorrow? That'd been true. But right now, I only have one yesterday. <laughs> And one today, I'm hoping for a whole lot of tomorrows, aren't you? <laughs> I'm looking for a whole lot of tomorrows. I don't know how many tomorrows I've got. But I know every day I live, I've got one less tomorrow. But every how many tomorrows I've got, I've got to have the same Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning then as he is today and he has in the past. 
Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the book of Revelation, numerous times he's referred to as the Lamb that liveth forever. He's got a kingdom that lasts forever. He's a king that shall reign forever. 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto him, unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, may honor and praise be to him forever. How can you give forever praise if there's not a forever God? He's given you eternal life. That's forever. <laughs> oh man, I wish I got on this earlier. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're not going to be here forever, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I do have two minutes left. More if I decide to borrow some time. I, I, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm way ahead on that. I could preach 45 minutes still being uh, the books would balance. Trust me, I keep up with it. Okay. Forever. A forever kingdom, a forever king. Perfected forever. The same forever. He hadn't changed. The hymn we sing, he sang, he's just the same today, right? God who lived in the olden times. He's just the same today. He hasn't changed. His purpose hadn't changed. His counsel hadn't changed. His power hadn't changed. His omnipotence hadn't changed. His omniscience, his omnipresence, his holiness, his righteousness. None of these have changed one bit, brother. He's still in the right hand, the majesty on how He's not on vacation. He's not uh, departed for a season, just like Elijah said, when he mocked those false gods of Baal. He says, your God must be on a journey. Your God must be slumbering. Your God must be asleep. No, my friends, he, they had a lifeless God. But the God of glory, the one that Elijah spoke to, he just called one time, brother, and the eternal God spoke, and fire came down and consumed that offering because his God didn't sleep. His God didn't slumber. His God wasn't on a journey. His God was everywhere present. His God was the same that day as he was the day before. Those four beasts and those four and twenty elders, the last thing we read about them in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, they all cast their crowns before his feet and they all bowed down and gave him praise and honor and glory forever. Forever is a long time. Long enough. <laughs> it's long enough, I tell you. Thank you so much uh, for your good attention this morning and your prayers and always your loving support.